You know, there's assignments that they tell you about, and there's that stuff they don't tell you. Like, come speak for 20 minutes, and they don't tell you, but we're going to mess you up emotionally for an hour. <laughs> then we'd like you to come share like a normal human being. <sighs> you ever get the feeling, have you ever thought what it would be like to visit the White House and sit in the Oval Office and just go, this is really cool, but someone way more important usually sits here. <laughs> it's kind of how I feel right now. This is really cool, but somebody way more important usually stands right here. On April 18th, I got a call from Miles. Didn't get a whole lot of details. It was 20 minutes I got to speak. He asked if I would speak. He didn't give me a whole lot of detail about what I was going to be talking about or what I should talk about. And so I asked a simple question, well, what's happening? I mean, I get it's the 25th, but is this like a Pastor Gary roast? Because that would be fun. <laughs> or what exactly? Well, he's polite, you know, miles to be places. Well, you, you could roast Gary. That's about where the conversation left. I said, okay, great. Then he got a, I got a confirmation text about time dates, and it just said, Pastor Gary roast or something else more appropriate. Pastor Gary Roast, <laughs> or something more appropriate. <laughs> you got to understand, this is putting a lot of decision-making power in the hands of a man who hasn't always made the best decisions in his life. <laughs> Pastor Gary Roast, or something more appropriate. Ouch. So for three months I wrestled. <laughs> Pastor Gary Roast. <laughs> As I've listened to you share this morning, I think, I, I think God has done something. Um, I think we've captured an idea this morning that is both appropriate, Miles, it's related to our context, and I would argue that as times go in a generation and an age of selfies, social media, and entitlement, is perhaps more pressing today than it ever has been. If this were the beginning of a sermon series, I would title the series Lesson is, Lessons It Has Taken Me 45 Years to Learn. And I'm not quite there. Lesson number one. You know what? Hang on. We need a little context. For those of you who don't know, Gary... has been my closest confidant, sounding board, trusted source of pastoral insight and counseling for a little bit too long, almost 20 years. Not only has Gary helped guide me through some of the most difficult experiences of my life, as I learned what it was to be a pastor, but also a parent and a husband and uh, for me just a decent human being. That was hard for me. He's been my biggest champion and you can hear it from others. He has cheered for me along the way, looking for, me, looking for opportunities for me to succeed, encouraging my ministry and my aspirations, both the good ones and the misguided ones. Gary has an uncanny 
and unnatural ability to sit in the passenger seat. And that's as serious as I'm going to get today. But I have found myself asking the question, what is this? What is this ability to listen, as you pointed out, Miles, to listen so long, to put his priorities on the shelf, uh, to just hear you out for all this time, promoting others, putting his interests aside, countless conversations about our lives that took precedence when it would be my turn, I would say, Gary, what's going on with you? Well, nothing really to talk about. Just boring you fold and I just do what I do. Which means one of two things, that Gary is either completely delusional which we have given some consideration to, or, as Miles pointed out, humble. Probably 15 years ago or so, I sat with Gary and his brother Tom in Kohler, Wisconsin. This was a meeting that had been set up solely for my benefit. No party had an interest in what was being discussed other than me and myself. I remember making some kind of comment about Gary's willingness to sacrifice time and money and relational equity to make this meeting happen. And I remember commenting on it, and I don't remember the exact words, but his brother Tom said something like this, and that's why Gary is my hero. His brother. Because Gary is never about Gary. What is going on? What has Gary captured that's so intriguing? I'm going to argue this morning for the next few minutes that he's actually captured a biblical reality. John 14 uses a single word for it, it's truth. But not so much truth as just facts, but facts put into practice. Put another way, it's living in conformity to reality. The question we're asking is, what is that reality? Back to where we started. The lessons it's taken me 45 years to learn. <sighs> the universe does not revolve around me to which Christians all over the northern North Dakota and Minnesota region have said, no kidding, Mason. <laughs> but it's not about me. The universe does not revolve around me. I, you, are simply not that important. It's a little painful, isn't it, in our age of selfies and entitlement that we're just not that important I'm going to argue that it is one of the founding principles of the universe. Genesis chapter 1. If we go all the way back to the story of our creation, we read this in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Just pause for just a second. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image. It's a great theological debate over centuries. What exactly does this image mean? Many ideas are true, no doubt. But we often use this phrase to elevate the position of humanity. We are like 
God, look at us. But do you realize there's a flip side to the same reality? The flip side is, but we're not God. We are, at best, an image. We were created. A foundational principle of the universe is that we were created to be image bearers. We were created to reflect a reality that is far greater than us. We are no more the center of the universe than we are God. We are no more the center of the universe than the mirror is the central part of our families at home. We are no more the center of the universe than we need to go and feed the mirror or give it rest. The mirror just bears an image. It is not the center of the universe. In some sense, if you really want to consider it that way, the entire fall of humanity is based on the fact that we still, to this day, refuse to accept the fact that we are not the center of the universe. What did the serpent tell Eve? You know why God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. But why would you be satisfied, Eve and Adam, with being an image of God? Why would you be satisfied merely being his reflection when you could be God yourself? And immediately after that, he handed them a cell phone and introduced them to Facebook. <laughs> Friends, we are not the center of the universe. We are image bearers. In a wonderful short book called It's Not About Me is this quote. It's, it's a two-paragraph quote. I rarely read a, an excerpt so long, but this one is worth it. The moon models our role. What does the moon do? She generates no light. Contrary to the lyrics of the song, this harvest moon cannot shine. Just quickly, how many of you know which song I'm talking about? <laughs> Old people. <laughs> This harvest moon cannot shine. Apart from the sun, the moon is nothing more than a pitch-black pockmarked rock. But properly positioned, the moon beams. Let her do what she was made to do, and a clod of dirt becomes a source of inspiration, yea, verily, romance. The moon reflects the greater light. And she's happy to do so. You never hear the moon complaining. She makes no waves about making waves. Mm. <laughs> Let the cow jump over her or astronauts land on her. She never objects. Even though sunning is accepted, while well, mooning is the butt of bad jokes. You won't hear old cheese face grumble. The moon is at peace in her place. And because she is, soft light touches a dark earth. He concludes the paragraph with this phrase, this question, which is really our question for today. What would happen if we accepted our position, our place as sun reflectors? What would happen if we captured the idea that we are not the center of the universe, but merely images of something far greater? I'd argue that there are two results that would take place, two implications of this, this kind of thinking. And, and I imagine some of you in the background being saying, well, who doesn't know this? We all know that we're not the center of the... Oh, we probably do, but, but have you deeply considered the implications of it? What if I told you that if you absolutely bought into this idea that you are not the center of the universe, your contentment 
would grow exponentially. Perhaps the most counterintuitive idea in the scriptures is that the more we forget about ourselves and focus on the real center of the universe, the less we think about our own needs, the more we serve the needs of others, and the result, in part, our own contentment. The more content we become with who God is, who we are, and with what we have. There are so many ways our world is offering us right now to pursue contentment that make us the center of the universe while setting God somewhere on a shelf to be taken up only if necessary. We had one just seven, six days ago. I know because I kind of reaped the benefit of this kind of narcissistic thinking, but we had something on Monday called Amazon Prime Day. Whereas if you already don't have access to everything that you really don't need but would really make you feel happy wasn't easy enough, they reduced pricing like crazy and we're going to ship it to you extra fast so you could be happy no later than Friday. <laughs> to which I saw a contentment meme and it said, I saved hundreds of dollars during Amazon Prime Day by not buying anything at all. And only a person who has learned some kind of concept of contentment gets that kind of meme. And, and the reality is that our world is offering you so many different avenues to your contentment. But the one they're kind of hiding on the shelf is that as soon as you forget about your contentment and put God on the throne, your contentment will grow. I am convinced this happens as a result of learning, of grasping, of wrestling with and coming to accept, I, I expect not perfectly, but in a continuously growing way that we are just not the center of the universe. One person went so far as to say it this way, and I find it a little bit shocking because it's harsh, but it's so true. Your happiness is not God's biggest priority. Ouch. But what if my own happiness was not even my biggest priority? And I'm arguing that the scriptures would say your contentment is likely to grow. Consider Paul. He's, the context in the book of Philippians is an example is of a man who is in prison. He's reviewing his situation, having served the Lord faithfully, and he's not really sure how his situation is going to play out. I had never been in prison myself, uh, but I don't imagine it to be the most pleasant experience, at least not in Paul's time. Death is on the table. Execution is a likely outcome of the course of his life. And he says, what do I care? Life, death, as long as Jesus is preached, I don't care. I don't care whether I live or die. I've learned, he says in Philippians chapter 3, I have learned to be content with a little. I've learned to be content with a lot. Apparently, Paul had a lot at some point and a little at other times, and he really didn't have a preference for one or the other as long as Christ was preached. Let me put it in my own words. Paul says, I am not the center of the universe. And when I accept that in some way, I'm good. When I remove myself from the throne of my life, my contentment grows exponentially. Hard words, aren't they? Uh, they're easy to say. I gotta be, I'll be totally honest with you. It really hasn't been difficult for me to say it at all. It's easy to preach. It's one of the easier topics you could pick up and say, oh, I could preach that. But you're right so hard to have the faith to live by. 
Let me add one more implication just to push you over the edge in case you just haven't quite become persuaded that it's good not to be the center of the universe, to grasp that reality. It seems that when we become this back seat instead of the front, or turn our attention to the back seat instead of the front seat, when we, when we remove ourselves from the throne of our lives, not only does our contentment grow, but the gospel of God becomes attractive. That God himself becomes attractive. I can almost hear it. Oh, yeah. Right, Mason, as if God needs help looking attractive. It's not quite what I mean, but consider this. If the premise is correct, that we are like the moon, image bearers of God, that we reflect the glory of God, that, when, that, that, that in some ways we represent God, then as Christ followers, we are ugly creators that are somehow supposed to reflect his image, then it's possible, and dare I say even likely, that you and I are the only image of God that many people will ever see. That somehow in the fundamental and founding principles of the universe was this idea that when others looked at the followers of Christ, they, or they were supposed to catch a glimpse of what it was like to see Jesus. And I get it. Just a glimpse. But at least a glimpse. And this can only happen, friends, when we are actually reflecting the Creator, when our world revolves around Him rather than ourselves. I've always found this fascinating, and I'm going to pick on a little scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to do something very generous and help the Jerusalem church that's suffering greatly. He talks about all this generosity, and he says these words to him. This fly is... I'm not um, struggling with some kind of <laughs> disorder. I, they're... There really is a fly that has <laughs> intending to do things on my face. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich, enriched in every way. So he says, if you are generous, and we're just going to shift those words, if you reflect Jesus, if you are the image bearer, and you are not the center of the universe, generosity would be another one of those implications. You will be enriched in every way. I hear your contentment will grow exponentially. But he goes on. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, not just giving them what they need, but it is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. There's a sense here in which Paul almost says it explicitly. When you remove yourself from the throne of your life, when you quit becoming the center of everything that you do, and you allow others and, and primarily God himself to be the throne, on the throne in your life, your contentment grows and God becomes attractive. As others turn their attention to God and thank him for you. It's impressive. I wonder, well, why when I do something unnatural and good do people thank God? And I just think it's a fundamental human reality. Because all humans know that if you did something that was not human, it wasn't you. Something else is at stake. And they turn their attention to God. Why does the gospel and God himself become so attractive? Because of your submission, Paul writes, to the gospel of Christ and your generosity. 
When you grasp the fact that you are not the center of the universe, when I grasp the fact that I am not the center of the universe, my contentment realistically grows and the gospel becomes attractive. Gary, thanks for modeling this. To me, to this church, to the communities that are represented here today, there are so many ways I would not recommend the church follow your example. <laughs> but I'm telling you, my friend, in this you have nailed it. Church, community of New Folden, surrounding areas, I encourage you that as you seek to live out your days doing whatever it is that you do, some in vocational ministry, some in business, some in school, some at the job, some are totally irrelevant what it is that you do. But as you do what you do, the more you come to believe that you are not all that important in the scheme of things, the more I trust you will come to find the fulfillment and contentment and the more the gospel of Jesus becomes attractive to others. Ask anyone. Ask Gary. Ask me, this is not an easy task. This isn't a lesson I've learned. This is a lesson we are learning. It is a process, it is a journey, it is a lifelong growth curve, but the beauty to the commitment to it is that, the, it, is that it results in the contentment that we've craved for that has been just outside of our reach, and it becomes a beautiful invitation to those around us to do the same. Amen.